Well, everyone, how you doing? It is great to see you, whether you're at Lake Cities, whether you join us in Argyle on Thursday night or on Sunday in Denton. We are really, really glad to have you. We believe that, that believing will save you, but it's following that will set you free. And so you are joining us on a journey together that begun a couple of weeks ago. Is We're going to learn how to be better followers in 2018. I'm really, really glad you're here. Before we get into the message, though, let me say this. One of our core values here at Cross Timbers, one of the things we talk about all the time is the concept of family. You know, there's lots of words in the Bible that describe God's people when they come together, the army of God, the body of Christ. We think the word that best describes what we're doing here is we want to be family that loves one another, celebrates with one another, weeps with one another. We think everybody needs a family to be a part of. And uh, in the spirit of family, can I introduce you to somebody new in my family? Everybody want to meet him? You to meet, I want you to meet um, Micah Thomas Garner is his name. Micah Thomas, he was born a couple of days ago in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, but we won't hold that against him. Uh, his mama Bailey, look at there, Bailey and Grant. Now what you need to see there on the right, that is my wife. For those of you who don't know, her name is Micah, and uh, they uh, prayed about it and decided to name this one Micah. And uh, we had some really hell scares with this one. In the early days of his pregnancy, really bad news, and we were, lots of folks were praying for him, and I was sitting by myself in a place, I feel like the Lord spoke to me in that moment about this name and about what God wanted to do in his life, and so I just want you to celebrate with me, man, God is good, he's really, really good, um, and I get the mic so you get to see baby pictures in my, in my family, I just want to say parents, look at me, parents, somebody who wants to be a parent, pray for your kids, man. Do battle in the heavenlies for your kids, your grandkids. Break generational curses off your family. The greatest privilege on the planet as a mama, a daddy, a grandpa, or grandma is to storm heaven on behalf of your kids. It makes a difference in their lives. Pray your guts out for your kids and your grandkids and watch God come and work in really, really big ways. I believe it with all of my heart. And uh, so I just wanted to share that with you before we got to this week's message. Appreciate you being so gracious and bearing with a sentimental old man. I want to ask you, everybody, stand. All of our campuses, stand with me. I want to read a passage over you and pray for you and with you. Uh, what I'm about to say to you this day is the truth. It's not comfortable, but it's the truth. And I'm going to teach you today four little words that I think could radically transform your life if you ask God to put them down in the marrow of your bones. If you really begin to believe them, I believe that God will change your perspective dramatically about where you find yourself. So let me read these words and pray and we'll begin. Psalmist David <laughs> writes in Psalm 139, O Lord... You've searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee 
from your presence. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works, they're wonderful. I know that full well. Let's pray. Lord, I think the cry of lots of hearts hearing my voice right now is, do you see me and do you hear me? And Lord, we agree with heaven this day that you are intimately acquainted with every one of us. You see, you hear, you're bringing your promises, <coughs> even your covenant to bear in our lives. You show up in dark places. You come in unexpected moments, in unexpected ways. You are near. Lord, for that one that came this day, wondering where you are, what in the world you're up to, would you remind us today that you are near? We declare with heaven, thine is the kingdom. And the power and the glory. In the name of the shepherd of us all, the perfect lamb that was given for us, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Guys, can have a seat. So have your Bible, your smartphone. We're going to begin in Exodus chapter 1. We're finally getting to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. I'll give you our key verse for those of you who are joining with us in your journal in just a moment, and I'll even give you a bonus verse to go with that verse. But Exodus chapter 1, this, this first chapter of Exodus really sets the stage for us. Here's some things we learn in Exodus chapter 1 that as Israel grows numerically, they become a threat to national security. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But I want to give you four words as we work our way to this story. Four words. I want you in the, in, in the message notes section of your journal, write them bigger than you ever written them. Okay, there's four words that radically change your life. I'm going to show you it from the book of Exodus. I'm going to tie it back to the new covenant promise that we're under. You ready? God is at work. Let's write them down. Everybody say it with me. God is at work. Now quit saying it like the Pledge of Allegiance. Say it like you believe it, all right? Come on, somebody. God is at work. God is at work. There are times in our lives when God seems to be asleep at the wheel. Come on, am I telling the truth? There are times in our lives that this side of heaven, I don't care what any well-intentioned Christian cliche might be, some stupid thing that some God believer says that makes no sense to you in your pain, that this side of heaven, there's no answer for what you're going through in this moment you can't sanitize it you can't spiritualize it you can't paint a rosy picture around it to make yourself feel better 
It doesn't make sense. It's not fair. But I'm telling you on the authority of the Bible, look at me. God is at work in it. God is at work. God hears, God sees, and God acts in the lives of those that he created. God is at work. Exodus chapter 1, we find out about what's happening in the life of the Hebrew nation. You remember they've been promised through Abraham that they're gonna, he's going to build a nation out of them. That is going to be a blessing to the world. That the nation is going to be as numerous as sands are on the seashore. And from Abraham, we find ourselves at the end of Genesis with Joseph. You remember, and Joseph dies at the end of Genesis. And now these 70 are left in the land of Egypt. And verse 8 says, a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites, they become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. Or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. <coughs> so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard were labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In their all their hard labor, the, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. There is oppression happening in Exodus chapter 1. There is hopelessness happening in Exodus chapter 1. You've got a king who has blessed Joseph, a Pharaoh who's blessed Joseph, who's put him second in command, allows him to bring all of his family there. It makes no sense that to the people that God had made this promise that Jacob's descendants would not live in luxury for the rest of their lives. It's what Jacob and his brothers and sisters and kids understood. But it was a foreign pharaoh we find out in history later. His name was, it was the 18th dynasty. It's stuff you guys don't care about, but his name was Hiskos, and he was a foreign leader. And now the new leader is not a foreign leader. He's an Egyptian. And this nationalistic pride begins to rise up, and they forgot who Joseph was. And his descendants, who had been promised in Genesis 12 to become as numerous as sands on the seashore, leave the penthouse and move to the outhouse, literally. They go from being born into this family with a silver spoon in their mouth because of what Joseph had done, and they find themselves. And the word in the Hebrew language, it, it denotes violence. It's not simply that they work them like a dog. It's they were violently working them like a dog. And they were having a hard time, the people who were being worked over and over and over again. And this isn't, I mean, you can't like put like a pretty picture on this. This is ugly and it's oppressive and it's unfair and it's it's built out of a paranoia and a fear it's it's what we saw in germany in nazi germany it was this 
fear us versus them. And if they get too much power, they're going to take control over us. There's nothing new under the sun. It's happened in the past. It will happen in the future. And there's this oppression that comes. And they're wondering, where is God in the middle of it? But do you see what's happening? You, you see the irony? Do you see that the Pharaoh issues, issues the edict and puts him, wants him to work them day and night? But the more they were oppressed, verse 12, this is what you need to highlight in your Bible. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. It makes no human sense. How in the world that people who get up at the crack of dawn, go to bed well past midnight with very little nutrition, used only as slaves, multiply. Let me tell you, because God's at work. God is working. The work of God is more powerful than the powerful, most powerful force in the known world in that part of the world. Pharaoh, God's at work. God's at work in their lives. You begin to get a glimpse of it. But here's the thing. It's not pretty. It doesn't make any earthly sense. You never see, it's hard to see God's work in these moments of hope, hopelessness unless you're looking in retrospect. As I like to say around here, there was not an Israelite among them that said, this will be okay, it's going to be in the Bible someday. Their prayers are seeming not to be heard. Am I talking to anybody in any of our rooms right that They seem to fall on deaf ears. How were they to know that the very oppression that they were under was going to be the spark to prepare them to enter a promised land? How prepared would a nation that had lived in the penthouse been for 40 years in the wilderness? See, God's at work. Yes, he could have worked it another way, but there is a God, and I'm not him, and I don't get to pick the way he works. I just got to believe that in moments when he's not hearing my prayers, when it's not going the way the pastor said it was going to go, when it, it doesn't compute, it doesn't equate, <clears throat> when you're praying year after year for a mate, for a child, for an illness to go away, for a better financial situation, and God doesn't seem to be moving. I'm here today to tell you that the message of Exodus is the message of your life. God's at work. God's at work. You hang on to it sometimes by your fingernails. It's why this needs to be a safe place. Free of religious pontification about nothing. And be able to say, man, it, this doesn't make any earthly sense. And instead of giving trite answers, weep with those who weep and remind one another that in ways humanly we can't see, believe for one another that God is at work. He was at work then in the forces of God that multiplied the nation of Israel in the time of their greatest oppression is the same God that's at work in your life and mine. God is at work. And the interesting thing about it is it doesn't get better, it gets worse. Because sometimes when God is at work, it's not an upward trajectory 
It's not a straight line. His ways are not my ways. He stands outside of time and space. It doesn't get better, it gets worse. Because as they increase, this Pharaoh, this evil Pharaoh who has all the power, declares genocide over God's people. We're going to kill these kids. Can you imagine? You look at the picture of Micah Thomas up there this day. I mean, it kind of just takes your breath away to think about this evil force at work. That this decree that these children are going to be killed. And you see, when God wants to move, He always picks a person. You understand this? He never picks a petition or a post on Facebook or Instagram. He picks a person. A person who's willing to wade into the mess and stand for what they believe. And word gets back to Pharaoh that these little boys are being born against his edict. And he calls in, who I believe from studying the scripture, he names two women who are midwives. Here's what we know about midwives. We know that they're midwives because they can't have children. This is why they're chosen for this profession. They have no children to take care of, and so their job is to help new moms. And there's two of them. I think they're mentioned because they're kind of over this little army of midwives, and they defy the Pharaoh. Now, this is interesting. Single, all my single ladies look at me. I sound like Beyonce. Everybody look at me. <laughs> they don't wait for a man to become relevant. They wade right into the middle of the mess. They don't need a husband or children to define their relationship with God. They're about to turn the tide against Pharaoh, the, hero, the heroes of these first two chapters. Outside of our main character, Moses, are two childless women. They are as strong and as powerful of a character as you will find in the book of Exodus. They are the beginning of the prophetic word of Jesus, the greatest, the, 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 the greatest triumphant lifter of women, Jesus Christ. And they're used, the Bible tells us here in Exodus, at the Exodus chapter 1, now in verse 18, the king calls them in. The king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Some scholars have, say that these next words are true. I have a hard time believing these words to be true. Because their answer is, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. I think that's a big, fat, hairy lie, personally. <laughs> I think they may be giving birth before the midwives arrive, but I think these two women have told the other midwives, slow your roll and let the babies be born. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people, every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but every girl live see they were just standing for what was true but God was at work 
and what was in the depths of their heart because they were, they were not putting conditions on their standing for God. God gave them the desires of their heart. Why? Because God's at work in your life. Maybe you're praying for a child, ladies. Maybe you're praying for a husband. Wade right into the middle of the mess because God's at work in your life too. God uses you in a mighty way too. These women would have never known that they're simple. In, in the moment where they stood before the Pharaoh thinking that they were going to breathe their last, that they were going to be let go, and God was going to bless them in this way. But see, God's at work when we stand for what's right. And so he issues a decree we just read to throw <coughs> the boys into the Nile, not the girls. The girls can be trafficked. The girls can be used and abused. But we're going to throw the boys into the Nile, not knowing that it's the very Nile River that we're going to read in chapters later, that God is going to ultimately use as a sign to deliver his people. Have you thought about this? crazy when you begin to think about it. That, that the beginning of God's deliverance of his people out of Egyptian captivity was a sign in the river sealed by blood. And that the deliverance promised to you and to me from the captivity of our own sin that is witnessed and sealed and professed in baptism into water is sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ himself. Why? Because God was, is, and always will be at work. See, it's interesting when you read the book of Exodus, this is where the concept is introduced of God as deliverer. He's been seen as warrior, as king. But this is where God comes to deliver his people. Because Exodus is ultimately a story about who God is and what God does, not about his people. And what God does is he works his plan in his way, in his time, hear me, for our good. God is at work. Can you imagine in the middle of your darkest moment, your Biggest fear coming true. Can you imagine the power that might be unleashed in your life if you believed in the core of your being? You don't like it. It doesn't make sense. It's not fair. Nobody can put a rose on it. But I believe God's at work. How it might radically transform your life and my life. For those of you who suffer from de depression, anxiety, battle some of those same demons, I battle would not it be the gracious gift of God to allow our greatest fears to become true and find out that God is at work anyway? That the thing that keeps us up at night, the what-ifs games that we play, if those things still came, did come to pass, wouldn't it be the gracious gift of God to allow us to come on the other side and find ourselves still standing, still walking, still talking, believing that God is at work? I don't know, it's big deal to me. Maybe it doesn't sound like it is to you, but it's huge to me. In the Bible now, the chapter begins to turn in Exodus 2. is kind of giving you this overview where we're headed. And the Bible says, now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant. She gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Why did she hide him for three months? Because Pharaoh was coming to kill him. Because the very, Egypt, the very Hebrew midwives, <laughs> don't miss this, 
that the blessing of God was they walked into their worst nightmare by God giving them kids that Pharaoh had issued a decree that they might be killed. But you see, God's at work. And so they hide this child down by the Nile River, the same Nile River that the boys were to be killed in, the same Nile River that represented the power of the God of Egypt, the same Nile River that God is going to use to deliver his people through a covenant of blood. They hide by the Nile River in verse 3, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a little papyrus basket. Anybody make one of those little baskets in Sunday school besides me? Get the little brown. Come on, somebody. Anybody get the little brown? I'm old, but that's what we did. Now y'all just like build it on your iPhones, but it was cool back then. And she coated it with tar and pitch, and she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Don't miss this. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it, and she saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then her sister answered, Pharaoh, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Do you get the irony happening in the story? you got a baby who is born, and they hide him in the river where babies are being killed, and he's found by the daughter of the guy who gave the order to kill the babies. Her maternal instinct kicks in. She defies her father's decree. But yet she has not had a baby, so she can't nurse the baby, and who does she pick to nurse the baby? Moses' mother. Why? Because God wanted to protect the lineage of the Hebrew people. See, this is awful. This is ugly. But on the backside, you see God at work. All the mother sees is I'm about to lose my child. Yet God is at work. And there's a connection between the birth mother and the child. And don't miss this. They give him a name that in Hebrew sounds like called out. His whole name, he's called to the Hebrew nation, called out. Forty plus years later, he's going to come back as a grown man. And what's he going to do? He is going to lead the people out. He's going to be the called out. How was he able to lead God's people out? Well, if you're going to be delivered from the Egyptians, you've got to think like an Egyptian. He had 40 years to learn to think like an Egyptian. Yeah, but you were going to go on a 40-year camping trip and you were born with this silver spoon in your mouth because you were a kid of Pharaoh. How are you going to lead people out in the wilderness? Oh, I know what. I'll use your mistake that we're going to talk about next week. I'll use your mistake, I'll leverage it, and I'll send you out in the wilderness for 40 years so you can learn how to camp. Like you'll have the Eagle Scout badge, the top badge for camping. You'll know everything about the wilderness because you'll spend 40 years of your life there. All Moses thought was that he had made a mistake. In his shame, in his shame he became like some of you. 
he allowed his shame to develop in him a victim mentality that excused him away from doing anything. See, this is the danger of shame. He wasn't useless, but he felt useless. It took a butane bush burning in the desert to get his attention. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Don't miss it. 40 years in Pharaoh's court, 40 years in the wilderness was all preparation for the 40 years of the most significant event to date in the lives of the Hebrew nation. You tell me who thinks this up. Because what it teaches us is that God is at work in the ugly things. In the make no sense things. God's at work. He's still calling us out. Now some of you know because <laughs> you're my friends and you've been a part of our church for a long time. And you know that in the last 10 years of my life, I think your life comes in seasons in the last 10 years of my life, I have said to you over and over and over again that the life verse for me that where I hang my hat is Romans 8.28. I probably mention that verse more than any verse here. If you're getting tired of it, good, I'm halfway there. Because Romans 8.28 says we know that in all things, everybody say all things. All things that God works for the good who those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. And it wasn't too long ago that I heard a man a lot smarter than I shall ever be. A man named Tim Keller who explained this verse to me in a way that gave it a nuance that I'd never fully understood. I think it's clearly represented in the story of Exodus. That when the Bible says that we know it in all things God is working, what it's saying is, is that all things happen to God's people. See, we like to think about God working in all things, but for God to work in all things, that means we have to experience all things. In other words, some of you are disappointed because your expectations are wrong. You believe that because you love God, you've given your life to God, that you're going to experience positive circumstances everywhere you go. You're actually surprised when something bad happens to you. Horrible things can happen to us, and believing and loving and serving God doesn't keep that from happening. You can believe in God, you can love God, you can serve God, and you can still be overcome by the forces of evil working through someone in an office building or a neighborhood. Everything that happens to everybody else will happen to us as believers. That's what all things means. Think about the passage we read Together a couple of weeks ago, what will separate us from the love of Christ? Remember this, how nakedness, persecution, danger, sore, those aren't good things. For God to say that we're not going to be separated by those things, God is saying through the pen of Paul that we will, lots of us will experience those things. And we see in the life of God's people here in Exodus, his chosen people, that you might be chosen by God. And still experience some of the most uncomfortable, disorienting, disconcerting situations in life. But the battle for your heart is for you to believe with every fiber of your being that God is still at work. That I'll have to have all the answers to believe that God is working and he's working for my good. And that I'm going to kind of let go of this notion 
that God owes me something if I love him with all of my heart. And that somehow I've got this, you know, I think Tim calls it, maybe, I'm sure it's him, I'm not smart enough to think so, he calls them like these blessing box passages that we take out of context. Like, if God is good when you're in California and a believer and your house is spared from the fire, then God is good if you're a believer in California and your house isn't spared from the fire. And that God's at work in the middle of all of that, right? Uh, and that understanding that when things do work together for good, it's only every, anything good that works out in your life is because of God. Do you, do you get this? Like in the world we live in, like things are designed to fall apart, not to get, come back together. I mean, sand on the seashore used to be a mountain. That, that's, that's, but, but anything good that happens in your life, it's not because you're smart, because you were good, because somehow you're God's favorite, although you are. It's because God chose to bring good about in your life. And so you sit in a little living room in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and you look at your wife, and you have three beautiful grandchildren. You never thought this would happen, and it's all because of the goodness of God. And if God would not give my children children or something difficult would happen to my children, God would still be good and God would still be at work. See, that's the part of the story nobody wants to talk about in church. But, but it's God who brings good. Anything good is because of Him. And yet, thirdly, we understand from this story is that bad things happen. God does work them for good. It doesn't mean we're going to have a better circumstance. A good circumstance is not an indication of God's love, care, and involvement in your life. It just acknowledges that the stuff that's crappy in your life, God's trying to work for good. The story of Moses and his people is our story. That God is still drawing us out. And in the middle of drawing us out, in this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble. <laughs> and it's not an indication of my lack of involvement in your life. And so I'm wondering if this might be the week in your life that you would quit Focusing all of your prayer on asking God to deliver you from whatever you're in and ask God, God, what are you preparing me for? What are you preparing me for? I know you don't waste my hurt. I know you weep with me when I weep. See, I think our key verse for the week, and I'll read it to you, and then we'll, we'll pray. I, what jumps off the page at me, and trust me, I have battled this for months, so I put this together. It's, it's, it's Exodus 2, 24 and 25. God heard their groaning, remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel, look at me, and he knew it was time to act. Even when they didn't know he was acting. And the Lord took me to a passage that I have read to myself over and over again in those dark nights of the soul. When what I know to be true, I'm not feeling in my bones. It's Psalm 58.8. Write this on your heart this week. 
you keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. He weeps with those who weep. But he is at work. Every step of your journey, sometimes painful, but it is preparation for the next step. He's getting you ready for glory on this planet. I believe it with all of my heart. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for being at work in places that we cannot see. I think this will be my declaration for the next 26 plus weeks. Lord, I am grateful for a God that doesn't fit in my box, that I can't define. I need a God big mystery. I thank you that you work in all things, even the things I wish I didn't have to experience your work in. And yet I think sometimes I am so locked in on getting out of this season that I miss the power of what you're doing in me in the midst of this season. I just I want to be like these midwives, these wonderful women, that I'm not waiting for something to happen before I wait in the middle. So, Lord, would you this week, in, the, in our quiet moments, would you take us back to where we started this series together? Would you give us ears to hear your voice? Would you show us how the stress, the pain, the disappointment, the unanswered prayer that we're experiencing right now, would you show us what you're preparing us for? Just give us a sense of your nearness. Would you forgive me for putting conditions on my love for you that as soon as you will do this, I will and understand that you love me in those dark places too. I thank you for a place where it's safe to share our struggles. I'm grateful that there aren't formulaic answers to questions that can never be answered this side of heaven. Most of all, God, I am glad that you're at work. I'm glad that you're not asleep at the wheel. I'm glad that you capture my tears in your bottle. You record my pain in your book. You love me. And I'm grateful, Father, for the, for the opportunity we're going to have in the next couple of weeks to watch people decide to join you in that plan. I'm grateful the hundreds, they're going to go public with their faith in baptism. And for the power that's going to be released in their lives to see and discern your work in even the darkest moments of their life. I'm grateful you divinely ordained the story that we have to tell on Baptism Weekend for that kind of moment. And I thank you for it, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.